Welcome everyone to this, the fifth in our series of Thrive London Good Thinking podcasts. And today we are talking about a topic that is going to be close to all of our hearts, and that is around sleep. Many people will be struggling with sleep at the moment, and we are delighted to have today Dr. Mike Farker from Evelina London Children's Hospital, who is a consultant in sleep medicine, and he's going to talk to our clinical director, Dr. Richard Graham, about how to try and improve sleep in the current situation. So over to Richard and Mike. Thank you, Tracy, And thank you, Mike, for making some space in no doubt your frantically busy schedule to share with us some of the things that might help Londoners get a better night's sleep. No worries. Thank you for having me. Hello. I think it might be helpful for us to start by just thinking how common sleep problems are because we'll probably all know somebody who has struggled with the sleep. How common are these problems? In the normal day-to-day run of things, we're all going to have some nights where our sleep is going to be more tricky. And for most of us, that's all it usually is. It's an occasional bad night. And we can usually track that back to things that have been going on. If we had a bad day at work, we're likely to be more difficult to get a good night's sleep at night. My main area of practice is paediatrics. So in children, probably about 15 to 20% of kids at any one time are going to have a sleep problem that is sufficient to upset their parents. And most kids and most adults at some point will have some issues with sleep. Actual sleep diseases are a bit rarer, but there is still a good host of those and that keeps me busy in my normal day-to-day practice. So how do you think coronavirus is changing the way we're sleeping? Are we seeing more problems? I think we will, and I think we're already seeing some of the early signs of that. So I think there's two really big things that will affect it. So these are exceptional circumstances that we are all living through. And it is a completely normal response when there is so much stress and worry about coronavirus around, then our brain is trying to deal with that and process that. And because one of the normal jobs of sleep is to process all the things we've been doing in the daytime, when we have days where we are more stressed and more anxious, most of us will find it more difficult to get to sleep and the quality of sleep that we get is going to be less good. We're also much more likely to wake up in the night and find it difficult to get back to sleep. So there's that kind of direct impact. And then I think there's also a secondary impact because for good sleep, we usually depend very much on a degree of routine and structure. And for many of us at the moment, our normal routines and structures have been thrown completely out of kilter. So we're suddenly finding ourselves, so many people are at home in self-isolation and quarantine, and their normal routines have gone. So that also will affect their ability to get sleep. So there's quite a lot of things disrupting our sleep. And I thought you made the point, I don't know whether this is actually true, but all those questions and challenges that we're facing during the day... I guess we're still thinking about while sleeping at night. Yeah, so sleep is important for lots of things. So I always bang on about sleep being the foundation of your physical and mental health. But one of the straightforward jobs that sleep is doing for you at nighttime is processing everything that you've done in the daytime. So everything you've thought, everything you've felt, everything you've learned, it all gets churned up and your brain's deciding what to keep, how it relates to things you already knew, what to get rid of. So the brain is doing a lot of work at night that sleep is supporting. And our daytime experiences very much influence that. So yeah, there's more churn, if you like, when we've been stressed and worried in the data. We found a good thinking that when people are under stress, sometimes at risk of burnout, they're sometimes forgetting to look after those aspects of themselves that need attention, like just drinking enough water or eating properly, getting some exercise. 
Do you think we should be prioritizing good quality sleep in the same way as we do those other areas? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, again, you know, even before coronavirus came along, lots of people were living lives that felt very pressured. I do a lot of work within the NHS with people who work shifts in particular about supporting their sleep. And we've kind of gotten out of the habit of thinking about sleep as being something that we should prioritize. If we have, you know, 26 hours worth of things to fit into a 24 hour day, then sleep to many of us feels like the thing that we can skimp on, that we can miss out to try and cram everything else in. I try very much to emphasise to people the other way around that sleep is supporting you to be able to function at your best at all times. I talk about sleep being like an MOT for your brain and body every night of your life. It's that regular routine maintenance that every aspect of your brain and body needs to be working at their best. And when you skip sleep, that has an impact on your ability to do everything else in your life. So yes, I absolutely think we should be prioritising sleep. But it's often about giving people permission and enough information to understand how and why they should be prioritizing sleep that's the key. I think that's very helpful because I think, as you say, when everyone is kind of going the distance mm. at the moment, even if in isolation, recognizing that a good night's sleep will make a positive difference to how you yeah. are and what you can do is a real health message to be getting out. A lot of it, I think, as well, is about putting it in context that people understand. So we think that, you know, it's again, even before coronavirus came along, we think most adults in a country like the UK are probably missing about an hour of sleep most night of their lives. So the most common amount of sleep for an adult would be about seven to eight hours. Most adults are probably getting about six to seven hours. And most of us are pretty good at making excuses to ourselves for that and saying, oh, well, you know, I got six hours of sleep instead of seven. That's fine. But if you think about that in a slightly different way, if you're missing an hour of sleep every night of your life, you're missing the equivalent of an entire night's sleep every week of your life. And as soon as you start thinking about it in those kind of contexts, you can start to see just how much of an impact even missing out what seems like a little bit of sleep is probably going to have for you. Yeah, that's quite a stark sort of mm. fact to take in, really. What does it feel like then to be living in that way where I guess the sleep pressure starts to build? I think, again, lots of us are living with that and don't realise that we are. So the analogy I often give is I didn't start wearing glasses until I was about 11 years old. And until I discovered that I needed glasses, I just thought the world was a bit blurry. I didn't understand that it was meant to be a bit sharper and a bit clearer. What we find is that people often adapt to that kind of living with chronic sleep deprivation and they just think that's normal. And it's only when they uh, get into circumstances where their sleep improves that they suddenly see the benefits of it. And for most of us, that often happens when we go on holiday, you know, a two week holiday away from work, no stress, no pressure. Most people will find they end up sleeping a little bit more on average on holiday than when they're at work. And they tend to feel a little bit better in the daytime. And some of that is going to be the, the positive benefits of being on holiday. But I'm absolutely convinced that some of it is also because it's one of the few times in our lives that we actually get the right amount of sleep for us. Yeah, makes a huge amount of sense. So you've got somebody who's starting to recognise they may not be getting mm. enough sleep and need to do something about it. Where would you start? What would be your first piece of advice to them in terms of improving well, the amount and quality of the a sleep? A lot of trying to get good quality sleep is about getting the basics right. It's like losing weight, you know, so if you are serious about losing weight, there are a few basic points that if you get that right, you're more likely to do it. But doing that is often very hard. And with sleep, it's about making sure that people understand what those basics are and how to put them in place. And that's what we usually encourage people to focus on to begin with. And it's all the really basic, simple stuff. It's trying to set an amount of time for sleep that is actually the amount of sleep that you need. If you know that you need eight hours of sleep to be recharged, for example, but you want to give yourself seven hours in bed at night, then you're going to be sleep deprived. So setting those basic limits, first of all, 
a lot of sleep is about consistency and routine. So setting a consistent bedtime and a consistent bedtime routine. I'll come back to that in a second. But also trying to stick to a consistent wake time as well is often really important. And then trying to make sure that people are not, particularly when they're sleep deprived, doing things like daytime napping, trying to catch up on sleep, which often is counterproductive. The time before going to bed is often really important and how we are able to relax and wind down is often really crucial. And I think that is something that is even more true now when coronavirus means that we've all got all these worries and stresses around in our head. So we all need to have things that work for us that help us to relax and wind down. Because if you hit the pillow at whatever time at night trying to go to sleep and your brain is still churning over all of that stuff actively, you're going to find it much more difficult to get to sleep. So we encourage people to think about their relaxation strategies and build those in, particularly in that last hour before bed. Beyond that, there's a mixture of do's and don'ts. There are some things which are bad for sleep. So, you know, too much caffeine in the daytime, bad for sleep. A little bit of alcohol to help you relax and wind down sort of in the early evening, probably helpful for, for many people, but too much alcohol will affect the quality of sleep that you get. So we encourage people not to overdo that, particularly not to have it towards bedtime. Screen devices, electronics, not brilliant for sleep. And that last hour before bed, if you're getting lots of light from screen devices, so TVs, phones, iPads, it confuses the bit of the brain that's trying to help you decide whether you're meant to be awake or asleep. So we encourage people not to be using those before bedtime. We encourage people to build in regular exercise in the daytime. Exercise is good for lots of reasons, but we know that for most people, the more exercise they have as part of their regular routine, the better their sleep is. And then the last bit of it, broad points, is making sure the environment is right for sleep. So a comfortable bed, dark, as quiet as possible, those kind of really basic, simple things. That's really helpful. And I think referring back to some of the resources mm. we have on good thinking, we've got a number of mindfulness apps, including Be Mindful, that I guess if people get into the habit of using that mid-evening or later mm. in the evening, they can start to sort of, as you say, yeah. manage some of those racing thoughts and anxieties that I guess can also make it hard to get off. To Absolutely. Sleep. And then going beyond that, people get into bad habits really easily. And breaking those habits can be difficult. So we know that for adults, most sleep problems, the best strategies to help is using cognitive behavioural therapy for sleep issues. And so what we call CBTI, cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. And there are resources and apps available for that. So if the basics don't work, then the next level up is accessing support like that to try and help improve things. One of the things I think we'd all recognise is sometimes it can be difficult to get mm. off to sleep. And that's the hard part. And, and that's where some of those mindfulness apps yeah. and CBTI apps, as you say, can help. But for some people, they'll get off to sleep and then find themselves wide awake in yep. the middle of the night. Do you have any thoughts about that yep. and the sort of things? So, so first of all, it's important to say that waking up in the night is normal. And actually, we all wake up multiple times every night and we settle back into sleep. And we usually don't realise that we've been awake. We sleep in cycles that take on average about 90 minutes. And at the end of each of those sleep cycles, our brain usually briefly wakes us up. And we're basically just doing a quick safety check to make sure everything's all fine and safe and secure. You go back to sleep. You don't remember you've been awake. But if you've been worried about things or stressed about things, particularly once you get into the back half of the night. So we get most of the really deep sleep that we get in the first half of the night. But in the back half of the night, if you have one of those natural wakes and your brain is kind of already engaged and thinking about things you've been stressed or worried about, it's really normal for those thoughts to kind of get away from you. And then you're wide awake and thinking about things again in the middle of the night. So kind of helping people to understand that waking up is normal is really important. And then, as you say, it's about trying to help people to get back into sleep. One of the absolute worst things you can do for sleep, both when you're trying to get sleep at the beginning of the night or if you wake up in the middle of the night, is if you just lie there thinking, oh my God, I'm awake and I'm trying to get back to sleep, 
you tend to find it becomes increasingly more difficult to get back to sleep the more you think about it. So actually, we encourage people not to spend long periods of time lying in bed thinking about sleep. So if you're wide awake in the middle of the night, you're not going to get back to sleep. It's actually better to get out of bed for 15 minutes or so. Don't switch on bright lights. Don't go on your phones, but just do something that distracts you. So, you know, do a puzzle, read a magazine. I like Lego. Anything that just takes your mind off it for a few minutes and then go back and try to go back to sleep again. And this is one of the times where if you've built a relaxation strategy into your going to sleep routine, you can then return to those because the more you build something into the routine, the more your brain just associates those things with falling asleep. So you can kind of train your brain that once you start whatever your particular relaxation mindfulness strategies are, if you start doing that again in the middle of the night, it can help encourage you to get back into sleep again. I think that's really helpful. And again, it ties in a little with one of the recommendations we've made a good thinking to help during this particularly stressful time, which is if you've got lots of worries on your mind, try to focus on something where you can have mm. some influence, some control. And so you can shift away from drowning your yeah. worries to thinking of something where you can make a difference yourself, no matter how small. One of my so. random tips, which seems to work for quite a lot of people, doesn't work for everybody. There's very few things that work for everybody is before you go to bed at night. So maybe 20, 30 minutes before you're planning to go to bed, write a list of things that you still need to do tomorrow. And just that physical act of getting it out of your brain onto a bit of paper and putting it away, saying, right, that's done. I know I need to do that, but I'll deal with it tomorrow. Seems to help people process it and stops you churning it over as you go off to sleep. So I agree, focusing on things you can do something about is often really helpful. But even, as you say, even acknowledging to yourself what mm. does lie ahead can even help yeah. you sort of get it out of yourself, externalise that and leave you free yeah. then to unwind. The, so the paediatric equivalent of that is, you know, the, the worry monsters that we give to kids so they can write their worries and the monster yeah. eats them and then parents secretly retrieve them overnight and deal with the worries. But unfortunately, we don't really have a worry monster for adults. But I think that's the same kind of idea. It's the same principle and works in the same kind of way. One of the other things I wanted to ask about is about the relationship of sleep mm. to our body clock. And you've already touched on the impact screens might have if we're using them late at night. And I, I have to say, and I probably turn into a sleep medicine fanboy at this point, I find the body clock one of the most fascinating aspects of human biology, although it's obviously not just humans. One of the things that can be recommended, even for people in isolation, is to make sure they get Absolutely. enough daylight. So our body that. clock, um, so what we call our circadian drive, is actually one of the most powerful drives there is in our body. And the kind of time that people become aware of that is, you know, if you travel around the world far enough on holiday to be jet lagged, you know how you feel when you're jet lagged. You feel you know, sluggish and slow, you feel a bit irritable, you aches, pains, nausea, all sorts of physical and mental symptoms. And that's the expression of your brain saying, I think it's this time and the world is telling you it's a completely different time. So when we go against mm. that body clock, we don't feel right. So as much as possible, when it comes to wake and sleep, we should be synergizing with our natural body clocks as much as we possibly can. The body clock is trying to keep you awake in the daytime, asleep at nighttime. Everybody's own body clock is a little bit different. And that explains why, for example, some people are morning larks who get up early, do their best work in the morning, but probably go to bed relatively early. And some people are night owls who are a bit slow to get going in the morning, do their best work later on in the day and, and probably have a later bedtime. So there's a bit of natural variation. Mm -hmm. But yes, as much as possible, we're trying to work with our body clocks. 
we are increasingly understanding more and more about our body clocks. So the Nobel Prize was awarded a few years ago for people looking at the cellular mechanism of body clock physiology. Mm. And actually, that's going to really influence, I think, over the next 20, 30 years. Things like when we time complex operations for people will depend on an understanding of their own innate body clock physiology. Because if we time it so it fits naturally with the best time for them, they are likely to recover better and quicker than if we do it at a worse time for them. So I think we'll get a much more understanding about this in medicine over the next few years. The general principles, though, so that the single most powerful thing that influences your body clock is light. And basically your brain expects it to be light in the daytime and associates that with wake. And it expects it to be dark at nighttime and associates that with sleep. So that kind of drives some of the recommendations we make for bedtime. So, you know, your bedroom should be as dark as possible. You shouldn't be using bright lights in the evening. Mm -hmm. And that's why we very much say try and avoid screen devices for that last hour before bed. But you're absolutely right. The converse is also true. Bright light exposure in the daytime helps reinforce that wake sleep distinction. And one of the best things you can do to keep your body clock in a healthy rhythm is to increase the amount of bright light exposure you get very soon after waking. So opening the curtains, hopefully letting the sun shine in, but just getting out into natural outdoor light as early as possible in the day helps to keep your body clock in sync. And through the day, it makes sense to get out into natural light as much as you can. So if you're getting breaks in the daytime or the chance to get outside, uh, get out into natural light. And that helps to, to keep things in sync as much as possible. So the early morning exposure to light sounds mm. like a really good tip for us. Really to, simple to as well. Although a consistent bedtime is important, I actually think a consistent wake time is probably even more important, to be honest. So the temptation to have long lies in and catch up sleep is very tempting sometimes. But I would usually recommend that you don't have a lie in at the weekend of you know, more than an hour or two at most past your normal bedtime and try and stick to a consistent wake time as much as you possibly can and get that light in early on in the day. Teenage sleep is a, a whole different ball game. I spend quite a lot of time trying to help teenagers with their sleep, but uh, yeah, they all love me. Yeah. I was just thinking, though, the extraordinary times we're living through, and, and some people are going to literally mm. be stuck indoors. Can these principles even work through? Yeah, um, so natural light is almost always better. We sometimes use bright lamp as part of therapy for trying to treat people who've got body clock diseases mm -hmm. or disorders but generally um, even light through a window is going to be useful if you can get outside in any way shape or form that is probably better but yeah any light is good I think again for the thing that worries me a little bit about people in self-isolation and quarantine is that it becomes very easy for things to slip you know if you don't think you've got very much to do in the day well you just end up staying in bed for long periods of time and then you don't get to sleep at a normal time and you know particularly with teenagers actually I think already we're seeing a proportion of teenagers inverting their body clocks their body clocks are a bit out of sync mm. to begin with and then once you've done that it's much harder to pull things back and get back in so we're encouraging people to stick to their natural rhythms as much as they possibly can, even in these circumstances. That's like really good advice. And if there's any top tip, it does sound to me that mm -hmm. getting outside as early as you can in the day might be one of the best bits of self-care. And uh, with that, you know, so if you are able to do exercise, then, you know, outdoor exercise, you know, even if it's a brisk walk within the limits of what we're allowed under quarantine rules, is good uh, for doing that. So outdoor exercise, natural light is a protective factor for sleep. And what's really helpful about that is I know there'll be restrictions mm. on some of us, but it isn't something that's so hard to achieve with an alarm clock or some other way of waking early enough. You should be able to just get that little yeah. bit of sunlight that will make a yeah, difference. Hopefully to... coming into summer. So fingers crossed. Yes, of course. Whatever else is going on, this <laughs> is still the United Kingdom. <laughs>
One issue I'd like to sort of raise with you, Mike, is the challenge that health workers face in terms of sleep and self-care at a time of extraordinary mm. stress and pressure within the health services. Yeah, absolutely. So long before the pandemic came along, over the last few years, I've been doing a lot of work about supporting shift workers in particular around about the importance of sleep and the impact of sleep deprivation and fatigue. And a lot of that's the kind of things we've already touched on. It's about using the basics and then fitting that into a shift working pattern. And there are specific recommendations, which we probably don't have time to go into to all the depths of, but things like, you know, how you design a rotor pattern to work with people's body clocks rather mm-hmm. than against it, how people move from a night shift to getting themselves back into day mode to come back to do a day shift at two days, three days after finishing nights. So that's something that I've done quite a bit of work on. And we can certainly send you links that you'd be able to, to signpost people to around about that. I think the question of key workers and NHS staff in particular in the present environment is an even thornier one. And all of the things we talked about at the the top of the podcast about the impact of stress and anxiety and day-to-day experiences, I think are even truer for NHS staff. And again, it's about getting those basics right. So we're doing a lot of work at the moment about trying to encourage people who are going to be in those circumstances over the next few weeks to look at strategies about managing their stress and their anxiety, using relaxation techniques, using mindfulness techniques to incorporate into their sleep routines, because it's those kind of really key core concepts that I think are going to be the things that are going to help people. But there's only so much you can do. These are exceptional circumstances and it is a completely normal response for anyone to feel stressed and pressured and for that to impact their sleep. So we're not trying to say that people should be sleeping completely normally under these circumstances. It's just about trying to give as much information as possible to to make it less bad, I guess. I think that's right. I think helping people prepare. And from what you're saying, it seems very clear that developing Mm. healthy habits around your sleep would be something that, again, will help you perhaps come through a little stronger than if you neglect this. The other bit that goes along with that very much is when people are working, we can mention that that kind of tendency of sometimes of people to think they're superhuman when they're under these kind of circumstances. But it's the really simple things. It's about taking regular rest and breaks. You know, if you're working a 12 hour shift, you can't possibly do that without stopping to take a rest and a break. But it's really difficult to take a rest when all you can see are all the people that still need your help and treatment and involvement. So it's about giving people permission to say look you know what if you take 15 minutes to have a cup of tea and a Kit Kat you're actually going to give better care to the next patients you see over the next few hours than if you don't do that but people often need permission almost to do that so that's another big area that we're working on. Yeah that sounds like a really important message. We'd like to finish with something of a habit that we've started to establish during our podcasts. You don't have to answer all of these but if you can I think it helps our audience, our listeners, sort of understand who you are and where you're coming from, in addition to this fantastic knowledge you have about sleep and how you're able to help people who I think are often tormented by the lack of sleep. So we're thinking about the challenges of isolation and whether as an expert in sleep medicine or just (laughs) Mike, would you like to have in isolation with you if it were three favorite. Oh, I don't know if I can do three. I'm rubbish at lists. I'm a bit of a superhero geek, so I'd probably go for <laughs> Superman. I think he'd probably be quite a useful person to have in isolation. He's a very positive kind of character. You know, I think the whole point about Superman is not so much his superhuman aspects, but the fact that what makes him a hero is the, the very human aspects of who he is and what he does. It's that bit of it, I think, has always appealed to me as much. It's the, the kind of person he is, particularly in these circumstances. 
Well, I think that's a rather touching idea, really, because I think all of us are dependent at the moment on people that are prepared to go the distance and face all sorts of challenges at times with near well, superhuman determination. I spent quite a lot of my time trying to persuade NHS staff that they're not superhuman in terms of their physiology. They often act in amazingly superhuman ways, but unfortunately, our physiology is just the same as everybody else's. Um, so understanding our limits and working within them is actually a really important point at the moment as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. I think often people treat themselves as if they're machines or computers without recognising the very issue that we've been talking about is critical to how they function. OK, well, let's let's move away from the challenge of a list. You're allowed to take some sort of media into isolation with you. It could be a book, could be some music, could be a film, even a recording of a play, I guess, or a sports match. There is a comic book series written by Neil Gaiman called The Sandman. And so The Sandman is effectively the god of dreams. And over the course of yeah. about 75 comic issues, it tells this epic story of this character. But it weaves in stories, it weaves in sleep, it weaves in science. It travels the whole experience of being human, I guess, and pulls in you know, everything from Shakespeare to science fiction to mythologies from all sorts of different cultures and societies into this amazing narrative. And every single time I read it, I find something new in it. So I could quite happily while myself away reading that if that was all I had. I think that's what I would for. It's interesting that sometimes I think in times like this, one of the best ways of transmitting knowledge and ideas oh, is actually through stories. Somehow we can engage with that when facts and yeah, figures no, just think seem less related. Stories and science, that's what makes us human, I reckon. It's the combination of those two things together is what makes us different. And we're going to allow you a luxury as well. I think you've been working hard, so you've got a bit of time out in isolation. I, I think not good for sleep, but I would go for some source of caffeine. So either some very nice coffee, which I am more addicted to than I should be, which is Pepsi Max, uh, to keep me going. Well, I was on the edge of my seat. I thought you might mention something north of the border that was a rather <laughs> no, stronger no. persuasion. But, <laughs> Well, that's a wonderful conclusion to a really helpful and informative explanation of just why sleep might be one of the most helpful things to prioritise during this time. So thank You're you very welcome. much, Mike. And uh, we may want to continue these discussions at some later point. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you.